right now on Tech Radio, the MacBook we've all been waiting for. Tech Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. Central. Every week online and on air with RTE Radio, we bring you the latest in tech. This week for episode 953, we're looking at new frontiers in genetic research, finding out if smartphones were still the big seller at Christmas and checking on the latest adventures of Mr. Musk amongst everything else. Let's chat with Tech Central Editor-in-Chief Niall Kitson. First off, Niall, has Google killed games? Uh, yes, in a manner of speaking. <gasps> oh, yeah, no. yeah, You must be devastated as a gamer. Well, I mean, this isn't this isn't a big surprise. And even as a gamer, it's not something I'm really going to feel the loss of, given the audience that this was being pitched to. So Google have shut down their online streaming service, Google Stadia. And the idea of this was you would just own a controller, you would have your Chromecast and you would just play play games through your through your TVs, assuming you've got a, a good enough broadband connection, um, a gaming streaming service, if you will. Um, and we've looked at we've looked at similar um, uh, services through the years on live being the, the main one. Uh, unfortunately, it, it fell over because of, I think, infrastructure issues, but also content as well. Stadia was meant to sort this out. This was meant to be um, sort of people developing games for Stadia, perhaps Stadia only. Um, and it didn't It didn't work out. It didn't get the traction. It didn't get the titles uh, for one as well. So Google have decided to shut it down. It's If you have invested in a controller and a Chromecast, you actually will get a refund on it. Uh, any games that you have bought, you will also get a refund on. So they're being fairly generous with it. Also, the uh, controller will still... F- function as a Bluetooth controller. So it will work on your PC. So if you decide you want to retain the controller, that's great because a lot of people are very fond of them uh, as well. It's a nice piece of hardware. So on one one level, yeah, okay, we're still not there with streaming gaming. Uh, I think we will get there. Uh, I think it's an inevitable development. I think Stadio is pretty good, um, pretty good experiment, decent backing behind it. But again, an example of if people associate you with doing one thing really well does not mean they will trust you to do everything really well. And we've seen that many, many times before with Google. We have. Things that they've tried and some of them have been absolutely brilliant. It's like Google search, what they're doing, email. Why would Google do email? Now look. Yeah, yeah. but they also they also sought to redefine uh, communication on the internet. They look to rebuild email with Google Wave, if you uh, remember that. True, true. And what's really interesting now is with uh, Chat uh, GPT coming mm-hmm. along, and that is doing something brilliantly simple that Google should almost be doing. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Like, you know, in another 20 years' time, will we be at a stage where, well, I just put it into the box and then the computer gives me the answer? What? It doesn't give you 100 pages of search it, results? It, it just didn't <laughs> tell you? What's going on? Amazing. Listen, before we talk about uh, Apple and what they've announced, uh, hallelujah at long last, a uh, quick pop quiz question for you. Smartphone sales last year, up or down? Uh, okay, well, if you believe the hype, 
uh, growth in smartphones is exponential and inevitable. The market is only going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. We're only going to get more and more saturated with handsets. We're going to buy more and more and they're going to sit in our drawers. Uh, uh, thanks for playing, Niall. Uh, I hope you enjoyed your day. Uh, you won't be going to the final. Smartphone sales are actually down 11% last year. That is the first time I've heard about a decline in smartphone sales mm-hmm. since the arrival of the iPhone. Uh, who do you think has the bigger share, Apple or Samsung? Uh, traditionally, it was Samsung, wasn't it? Because they had a wider range. Hmm. They're actually almost neck and neck. And this will be in the States, all right? Uh, okay. 19% for Apple, Samsung, mm. 22 Okay. Well, that's still a significant difference. But again, uh, looking at Apple's simplicity and how they really boiled things down to, mm. okay, here's your iPhone, blah. Uh, as, blah. Opposed, <laughs> yeah, as opposed to Samsung going, how much money do you have? Oh, we got something for you. Over here, no, over here, over here. it's the other way around. Samsung go, here's the latest 23, blah. And <laughs> Apple go, how much money do you have? <laughs> yes. would, you, would you like a case for that phone? That'd be 200 euro, thank you. Oh, yeah, you want more memory? Yeah. 200 euro, yeah, grand. Oh, you want a power plug for? 200 euro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Anyways, listen, let's talk about Apple. Uh, they have finally announced improvements to the Mac Pro and the Mac Mini. It's getting the M2 processor. Are you impressed? Now, we are finally, finally getting the MacBook we've been looking for. Um, whenever we talk about things, never get the first generation, always get the second generation. Yes. Uh, that would be an extremely good move mm-hmm. in this case. Mm-hmm. Um Finally, also, if you are looking to get a MacBook Pro that has a reasonable screen size and reasonable performance to go along with it, um, you've still got the choice of a 14-inch or a 16-inch. Mm. Um, I use a 15-inch monitor on my laptop, um, so I don't, I don't know. I'm kind of torn between the two. I guess that's kind of what Apple wants. Mm. Um, you, you have gone through the specs well, a little bit, because I am interested. And I mm. broke my golden rule by getting the uh, the Mac Mini last time around just to see what this M1 processor is like. And actually, yeah. it's really good. And I should have followed my own advice and waited for the M2. But it would have been a two-year wait. Yeah. So and I, I'm not that patient, all right? Um, so I think kind of this time around, yeah, the M2 is here. It's got more cores in it. And that, for me, is the, the, the biggest uh, thing when I'm buying a processor or a machine to see how many cores and how many things it can do at the same time. Um, this one is definitely faster than the M1 between 20 and 40%, depending on, on, on what spec you go for. Um, more importantly, I think for the Mac Pro, the M2 processor is going to really make good use of the uh, the battery power. So you should be able to get 22 hours on a, on a Pro laptop. It's got the uh, the really fast Wi-Fi 6E. Uh, it's got three Thunder ports, thank goodness, so you can actually do something with it. Hmm. Um, the Mini is not as well specced. All right, because okay. when you look at the price, you kind of go, oh, my God, that's a, that's a big difference. But mm. they're both the M2 processor. No, there's a huge difference. Um, the Mac Mini, uh, the maximum that you can get in RAM is 24 gigs of RAM. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, interestingly, on the Mac Pro, as in the laptop, the mm. maximum you can get is 96 gigs of RAM. Wow. 
Now, generally in my experience, all right, um, four gets you by, mm. eight will be reasonable, which mm. is where what Apple puts into most of its machines. 16 is really nice, all right? Mm-hmm. When you start going up into 24, you don't see the same improvement that you will between eight gigs and 16 gigs. It's not as big a jump. Mm. So I don't know, like 96 gigs? However, there's people who work with video all the time mm. and it probably makes a huge difference for them. So I'm, I'm just not aware of that. Price-wise... The uh, Mac Mini is 730 quid, which I actually think is, for what you're getting, is great value. You're getting 8 uh, uh, CPU, 10 uh, GPU, you get 8 gigs of RAM, you get a 256 uh, SSD hard drive with that and a fast one as well, all right? So as a general office machine, computing, whatever to have in the house, fantastic. It'll go like a rocket. Hmm. 730 quid and it's small and it's quiet and all that kind of stuff. Um the MacBook Pro laptop, okay? Mm. Um, this is where it gets interesting because if I tell you that the improvements are amazing, all right? So we've had the M1 in the laptop. It has a 13-inch screen. The new one has got a 14-inch screen. Uh, you're going from a 10-core CPU up to a 10-core CPU. Mm. Uh, the GPU is going from 10-core GPU to 16-core, mm-hmm. all right, which is a big, big jump. As if you do a lot of video, you're going to love that. Uh, the basic RAM that you get, as I say, it goes from 8 megs uh, or gigs RAM up to 16 gigs, a standard, uh, with the MacBook Pro. And the hard drive is twice the size as well. Mm. It's 256 uh, gigs SSD compared to 512 on the uh, MacBook Pro M2. However, how much is all of that worth? Would you pay 50% more, 25% more, 10% more, or would you want to pay the same price as you did last year for the M1? Well, I mean, if you offer me the choice, I'd love to pay the same price. All right. The price last year for the M1 entry level was 1630 Ah. The entry level, with all these improvements, Mm. of the M2 is Mm. (laughs) €2,499. Right. Like, you're paying an extra €870. For that kind of improvement. That's almost like, the price of a Mac Mini. So, uh, hey, there you go. Yeah. So what do you do? Do it's you go, do, do you get Mac a laptop? Mini. Yeah, do you, do you get the M1 and, and, and get the new Mac Mini? Two yeah. computers for... Th- so, like I, like, I get it. Everybody's jumping up and down on Apple and it's amazing. And it's that more powerful and da-da-da. But, like, the minimum spend mm. is 2000 Four five hundred quid, and like if mm. you want the the sixteen inch laptop, if you want extra RAM, if you want, it, I mean, bing 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 bing, yeah. And, and as I said earlier, with Apple, what do you want? Oh yeah, that's it's two hundred thirty euro. Yeah, yeah. two hundred thirty euro. Yeah, grand, fine, lovely. Particularly with RAM. Particularly RAM, with RAM, hard drives, almost anything they do. It's just it's two hundred thirty euro. So like I understand it's all like you know directly wired into the motherboard and it has to be da 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 and whatever, mm. but. Lads, you're just like, you're looking at your customers, you're going, how much can we get out of them? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or, you know, assuming, because it's it's pro, they actually mm. mean pro, I think, Apple these days. Um, are you working in a, in a creative industry? Yes. Is your company probably going to pay for this? Yes. Well, there you go. And, and, you know, and will you get... The value out of it, uh, this is interesting because I've spent, as you know, over the years, thousands and thousands and thousands of various different MacBooks, all mm. right, and, and Mac uh, Pros and all kinds of stuff. They've all been excellent machines. They've all been very reliable. They've all performed very well. I've made it 
ton of money out of every single machine I've bought from Apple, all mm-hmm. right, because I do all my creative work on it, all right? Mm-hmm. Um, but once it gets to a certain point, like five or seven years, mm. you're screwed, all right? I, I had a Mac Pro. I could not sell it, all right? It was literally keeping a door open for me, and I, I flogged it for 150 quid. Wow. All right? It was as good as any i5 processor today, mm. all right? But it was just big, heavy, chunky, mm. power-hungry, da-da-da, whatever. It had terabytes and terabytes of hard drives on it, spinning hard drives on it. Mm. Like, if you wanted to do something with it, it would work perfectly. Mm. And it was a great machine. Couldn't flog it. Wow. You know? And one of the reasons being, it's a, I, I can't remember which operating system, but it was one of the older operating systems. Anyway, the guy who bought it off me mm. loved it. <laughs> oh, man, he says, I've been looking for this for ages because I use Logic and I've got a load of old projects mm. that I'm not able to open because of all the upgrades since. And I want to access these old projects. So I'm going to take this machine. And I said, oh, but it only goes up to Maverick or something. He goes, mm. oh, I'm going to delete that. That's way too modern. <laughs> <laughs> so he's going to put something older on it and put on his old software and, and, and just run it as a, as a legacy machine. So uh, am I going to run out and buy one of these new M2s? Mm, maybe, mm. maybe. Do you know what? If if I I have somebody in mind who who I can give the other mini to who who get a bit of use out of it. Mm. So if I give it to them, I'll probably just get a new one. Whatever. Yeah, seven hundred thirty quid. How how can you go wrong? Yeah, yeah. Mac Mini has always been an excellent value machine. Uh, mm. I looks like it's it's going to be more of the same. Great little purchase. Then they'll forget about it for a few years and everyone will go, where's the Mac Mini? And they will grudgingly release an update. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, and hopefully they'll yeah. keep the same form, form factor because everything's yeah. getting smaller and smaller. Mm. You yeah. know? Yeah. And, and, they, and because it's using less power, it's not as hot and mm. it's not as loud. And blah, blah, blah. Anyway, that's the big announcement from, uh, from Apple this week. We're exciting. Uh, we're excited, but not that excited. We're, we're excited, but no. not rich. <laughs> Well, you know, price. Oh, listen, uh, speaking of power and stuff like that, um, I had mentioned before about Intel and new processors they're doing. Mm-hmm. Their 13th gen uh, processors now will have up to 24 cores. So that's pretty good. And we'll run at a speed of 5.6 gigs, which I think is the first time anybody's gone that fast. So, mm-hmm. you know, Intel are keeping up there with, with, with Apple and stuff like that. Now, uh, other stories. Let's talk. Oh, we're going to go down a fantastic memory uh, lane trip with MP3 players in a second because something happened during the week. We'll tell you about it. Uh, but first, my man, my man, your Mr. Man, Musk. Your boy. Yeah. Um, yeah. On, brings up the speed. It's a, it's a tough week in Musk world, let me tell you. There's, <laughs> it's there's... always a tough week in Musk world. <laughs> <laughs> there's, um, there's three big stories affecting one Elon Musk at the moment uh, in, in reverse order, I guess. Um, one is the uh, $1.5 billion de- uh, bill he is getting at the end of the week in interest payments uh, over his uh, Twitter Uh, purchase. Um, He doesn't have the money, apparently. Uh, His options are, well, apparently Twitter is losing something in the region of $221 million this year. So his options are basically pump a load of money into it, from whence we're not entirely sure, um, walk away and bankrupt it. (laughs) Sell a few more blue ticks. I mean, he's running out of ideas. Yeah, he certainly won't be buying a Mac Mini. No, no, (laughs) no. What else is happening with Mr. Musk? So, uh, 
also happening. You might remember a couple of years ago, there was a very sad case of former Apple engineer who died in a road traffic accident in California. Uh, he had been uh, allegedly relying on the uh, autopilot on his Tesla car. Yep. The uh, car ended up running into uh, a median uh, divider on the highway and uh, the the young gentleman was unfortunately killed. Now, um, this case is going to... Not trial, there's, there's ongoing litigation and it has emerged uh, by the director of Autopilot Software won a shock... Oh, goodness, help me out here. Ellis Wami. Yeah, I said that right. Ashok Eliswamy, uh, who was the head of the Autopilot software at the time. Um, one of the sort of wow moments with Tesla Autopilot was a, a video they released uh, in 2016, I think it was. Um, yeah, it was 2016, where they showed the Autopilot at work. Mm. And there was a little note there, you know, saying, you know, um, not quite for instructional use only, but, you know, this is, you know, the driver still has to be here, you know, to, to use the autopilot. Um, and uh, we have now discovered um, that that video was staged. <gasps> that was not Tesla's autopilot software engaged. That's a big development. So if you have a case where somebody went, Tesla Autopilot. Wonderful. Observe. It works. Um, I'm going to, that's going to inform the purchase of my next car. (laughs) Interesting. Also, you know, the video is promoted heavily on Twitter by Mm. Elon Musk going, observe, Um, you know, also could be considered a fairly hefty endorsement Mm. of something that actually didn't exist. The other story with uh, Mr. Musk is the trial. Uh, which <laughs> trial. <laughs> uh, there he goes. All right, yeah. Doesn't rain, but it pours. Yeah, trial selection is, uh, it's just completed actually by the time the show yeah. goes out uh, in San Francisco. Uh, basically, the trial is a whole bunch of share- shareholders have taken Elon Musk to court mm. over tweets he made in 2018 where he alleged that he had the uh, funding in place to take Tesla private. You remember. I do, yeah, yeah. And everybody's going, amazing! And then the share price went up and loads of people are buying it and and all that kind of stuff. And then the next tweet went, oh, sorry. Did I I say that? I was only kidding. No, don't own the man. Yeah, I must don't own. Yeah, and and then the share price collapsed. Well, and loads of people lost, lost a load of money. A load of people lost a load of money. The share price didn't collapse, but it, it you know, there was an awful lot of fluctu- fluctuation, mm. shall we say, to put it mildly. Um, so a lot of people are taking Elon Musk to court. Uh, it's, it's basically a fraud trial. Mm. Um, Musk tried to get uh, the case moved to Texas, where mm. Tesla is based now. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, uh, the judge said, nope, sorry, Case is being taken in San Francisco. It's going to be heard here. Uh, so there was um, jury being selected, and Musk said, "Oh, you can't get a jury in San Francisco. They all hate me here. They all hate me." Yeah, yeah, yeah. So some of some of the uh, uh, responses uh, to prospective jurors when they were being quizzed hmm. by both sides were were quite amusing. They're like, "Okay, what do you think of Elon Musk? Right? You know, what do you think of the guy?" Uh, one person just said he was a narcissist. Um, hard to argue with that really no, yeah. <laughs> the fact he's a narcissist is not on trial it's not, I think guilty it's next not, it's not really up for discussion uh, another said he was a little off his rocker 
<laughs> I'll take that. <laughs> yeah, no discussion. I'll there, take yeah, that. They, they speak at the truth. So um, this is this is where we are. I mean, this is something that uh, the Securities and Exchanges regulator in the States already came down on. They fined Musk uh, $20 million mm. and uh, told him to step down as chairman of the board of, uh, of Tesla. Mm. Which so, he has done. Which he, which he has done, yeah. yeah. Uh, but mention of that ruling cannot be made in this trial. So this has to be judged on its own efforts, not the uh, existing sanction from the SEC. All right, okay. Then now you're going to get into all legal, legal, and uh, uh, my brain can't handle it. To that. be continued. Final story for this week, and a sad story from yeah. Singapore. Uh, the founder of Creative Labs, the man who brought us the Sound Blaster audio card, Sim Wung Hu, has died at the age of 67 years of age. Well, I, there's two things I will remember him for. Uh, one, of course, is is created like the Sound Blaster card. Mm-hmm. You had to have the Sound Blaster card mm-hmm. uh, in your computer in order to hear anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and especially for my line of work, uh, where you wanted decent sound quality. But the other thing, and a lot of people maybe have this, is that I think Creative Labs and Sound Blaster uh, were the ones who really gave birth to the MP3 player because we're all thinking about I mean we all listen to we don't even listen to MP3s anymore we all listen to music and whatever on our smartphones now uh, at that time we had this is before the iPod so he was kind of he jumped on that whole well people are encoding music to MP3 files let's have some kind of a a, a machine that you can put in your pocket that can hold MP3 files and play them out and we Mm. had there was a Diamond Rio from what I remember at the time. There was a couple of other little ones, but he was the first one to really go um, full out on it. And I mean, you had one and I had one. Mine was a jukebox and I liked it because it was big, of course. Right, right. (laughs) And it was kind of almost the size of a portable CD player, Mm. uh, but it held, I can't remember now. It sounded amazing at the time. It held like a thousand songs. All yeah, right. Yeah. Um, and this is before the iPod, before Steve yeah. Jobs. Look at this, thousand songs in your pocket. Oh, sorry, Steve, I already have one. Thank you. Um, and I remember I was going on a trip to Australia and I actually had to go up to Creative Labs. They have a, an outlet in Blanchestown. Right. <laughs> and I said, I need one. I'm going, I'm flying tomorrow. I'm going to be stuck in a tube for like 30 hours. I need music. I need mm. this thing. And I went down and they got it and then they gave it to me, fair play to them. Um, but it was an amazing machine at the time. Yeah. Yeah. To be able to think, you had you had you had one as well, didn't you? Well, there there was um, there was really only one competitor to the iPod when you know we were at peak mm. iPod, if you will. What uh, just before we'll say two thousand three, two thousand four, around there, um, around there, peak peak iPod, we'll we'll call it. And I don't think I think that's I can't remember. Actually, I'm going to look it up while you're talking. But uh, I think this is pre iPod in my head. Okay. Um, well, in when do you my think the iPod head, was launched? Uh, Two thousand and one, wasn't it? Uh, uh, a lot. When was the iPod invented? invented. <laughs> Let's not go invented. Uh, Very different question. Uh, launched. Okay. Google says, uh, "Oh, October twenty third, uh, two thousand one." Boom. Boom. I, I you drop. are correct. You are the fountain of all knowledge. Mark. Okay. Right. When I will, we'll call peak iPod two thousand two thousand four, for example. Okay. At the time. There was only two real MP3 players because in the market because they roughly had the same kind of um, form factor. The um, creative one was a little chunkier. Mm-hmm. What, was, what was the name of the creative one? 
There was uh, is it the jukebox is the one I had, and then the, there was a Zen, I think it was the name. The Zen, yeah. yeah, that's that's the one, and uh, it was a little bit chunkier than the iPod, but they both had. I had a fifth generation iPod, and but they both had a lovely form factor, and where the iPod had the the circle mm. in the front, the uh, Creative Zen had sort of the bit in the middle that you went up and oh, down. Oh, up and down. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah, I remember. Yeah. Uh, ultimately, a, a sort of sidebar on this, um, Apple ended up uh, paying Creative $100 million over the menu uh, on the iPod. Yeah. Uh, initially, Creative took them to court for like, they were, they were quoting like crazy, crazy money. Yeah. $100 million was the out-of-court settlement. Um, and I remember the two being sort of pretty good. What did it for me what you know cemented my um, place in Team iPod was iTunes integration none of this dragging and dropping from folders or anything like that plug it into iTunes straight across that was that was the game changer that's that's what did it I had a friend of mine who swore by his creative zen you know mm. out of his cold dead hands kind of a thing and by all means but um, yeah iTunes was really where the where the iPod found its. its I think that was niche. one of the things that changed it, and another thing I think another game changer at the time, and we all kind of laughed at it was the iTunes Music Store, mm. where you could buy the songs for ninety. It's like why would you buy them when you could download them for free from Napster? From Napster, yeah. but of course, like you know, well for Napster you've got to do this and that and jump through this hoop and that hoop mm. and then connect to something else and da da da. With iTunes, like it's it's a dollar, it's a euro. Mm. I pay it. I've got it in ten seconds. Yeah. Done. And now, like, if you if you look at, you know, Spotify, I'll get it for free. Yeah, I'll, every song ever made for free. For free. Well, it's <laughs> well, $9.99 a month. But yeah, assume the artist hasn't gone, you know, hasn't gotten annoyed yeah. and pulled their content. Yeah, it's funny. RTE had a really interesting uh, article on uh, Line the other day. because I think News Today, one of their, their kids' services, uh, 20 years old this week. Wow. And they were kind of going, looking back at television 20 years ago. <laughs> and I'm kind of going, hang on a minute, 2003. Um, okay, yeah, I remember those days. <laughs> Oh dear. <laughs> did it did it make was, you feel old? I was a proper grown adult in two thousand and three, like, you know. <laughs> it did make me feel old. And they but, but it was interesting how they were kind of going, back in two thousand and three kids would have to watch programs when they were broadcast. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> you would just sit down and watch whatever happened to be on. You couldn't pick and choose what you wanted to see. It's funny how it goes. Crazy. Anyway, listen, there we go. That is the uh, latest news for this week. Of course, you grab all the latest stories and feeds on our website uh, whenever you want at techcentral.ie. This is Tech Central, your weekly tech podcast from Ireland's techcentral.ie. It's estimated that there are 300,000 people living with some form of rare disease at the moment in Ireland. Investment in rare disease research could reduce this burden on families and the health service. But for now, children are still getting lost in the health service, trying to get an accurate diagnosis and access to the services they need. However, there is hope. Last year, Professor Sally Ann Lynch won the inaugural Health Research Charities Ireland Health Research Impact Award. During the week, she spoke with Niall Kitson about her work identifying the role of genetics in identifying the causes of rare diseases. Sally Ann, first and foremost, I have to uh, congratulate you as being the winner of the inaugural Health Research Impact Award, uh, recently given out. Uh, so tell us a little bit about the award and what it means, because it is it is the first first of its kind uh, in Ireland. Well, thank you very much. And it is a great honour to have won it. 
So um, the Health Research Charities Ireland partnered um, over 10 years ago with the Health Research Board in Ireland to try and improve the reach of grants, research grants going um, across the health service in Ireland. So I think if if you think back back to like 2010, 2011 was the was the first time I applied for this award and we're sort of at the end of the um you know down to economic downturn and the health research board in Ireland are the only Irish sort of um governmental body that give research grants for medical research for health research but there um the sum total of money they were given by the exchequer was very little and so therefore the number of projects they could fund was limited so they partnered with what was then called the Medical Research Charities Board now the Health Research Charities Ireland and then they would joint fund together a charity would partner with the Health Research Board and joint fund different projects and this allowed much more access to to research funding for um for health uh, throughout Ireland and it's been a, a really great scheme um even I should say that even when you are applying for these, the chance of you getting the award is only about 10%. They're they're competitive, they're reviewed ex- by external experts and so there's no guarantee you'll get the money. Um, but if you're lucky enough to, to do it, it's a great achievement, first of all, to, to, have, been, uh, to have been awarded the grant. Uh, but it's, it's been great in widening the circle of research that can be done in health in Ireland. So tell us a little bit about your work. I mean, you're you're, you're working in genetics, uh, a field that uh, initially in the popular consciousness brings to mind things like CRISPR and editing. But of course, on a more practical level, we're looking at things like early diagnosis, uh, which I imagine is sort of the 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 end of the of the field that you work in. Yeah. So um, I don't do any highfalutin science. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is more sort of trying to make diagnoses in. Um, but with clinical geneticists, we see uh, patients of all ages. So we're trying to make diagnosis in sometimes antenatally, um, sometimes in the neonatal period and often in childhood and then also in adults. And at the time this award was made, there was new um, research which was enabling um, a load of genes to be tested in one experiment. So previous to this, you had to kind of guess the gene that was involved and then test one gene after the other, which was really um, prohibitive. And especially in some fields where there were hundreds and hundreds, sometimes even possibly thousands of genes that could potentially cause your patient's clinical presentation. So um, we knew that this technique technology was developed. And so the uh, the grant, the first grant and then the second grant that we applied for was to try and offer this to um, patients where the testing that we had in our armory, if you like, at the time had come to an end and we were still left without a diagnosis. And I suppose if uh, I work in the field of rare diseases, which can affect every part of the body and they're often chronic, sometimes life limiting. So they're very serious conditions. Um, and because they all have different names, they tend to get kind of lost in hospital systems. But many of the families would want to know what it was, why it happened. Was it likely to recur again? Was there anything they could do to um, increase their chances of having a healthy pregnancy if they wanted to have another child? So they're the sort of questions that they might have come uh, come with. And also, like, if you don't know what the diagnosis is, you're never really sure what the future is. So achieving a diagnosis um, is is very important. Um, the older the person, the child, if it's a childhood onset disorder, the older they, the child gets, 
parents know that often making a diagnosis won't change the prognosis, but there's still um, a huge relief um, when you when when you actually can give a diagnosis, even in a in a much older child or adult. Um, so we um, applied for the, the first funding with joint partnership with the uh, National uh, Children's Research Charity here in Crumlin, uh, together with HRB, and got two two years funding. And I had a fantastic postdoc called um, Gillian Casey, who was the scientist who analysed the data. And so I kind of offered it to families that were suitable for their structure would have worked, if you like, for the um, research, mainly that the unfortunate couple often had two affected children. So you knew it was genetic and um, you were more like diagnosis. Um, and then on, based on the success of that project, we carried on doing it sort of with metabolic conditions linking in with Ellen Crushell in Temple Street. And we got funding from the Temple Street Research Foundation at the time. And of course, those two um, charities have joined forces now with the um, combined combination and the creation of Children's Health Ireland Group. So that was the, the four years of the, uh, this, the grant, although, and we published quite a number of papers from it, which, um, you know, carried on um, a number of years after the grant ended, because often uh, research takes quite a while uh, for results to come through and then to, to, be, to be trying to write publications and try and get the papers out. So I imagine this would lead to an awful lot of services being reconceptualized as opposed to something happening to a... <clears throat> excuse me, a, a child and then that part of their care ending, you, we should be looking more towards a longitudinal um, approach where people are just handed off quite neatly from one service to the next throughout the lifespan. Yeah, so one of the, um, I guess one of the concerns um, that uh, parents have with certain conditions, and I suppose one of my interests or one of the, a lot of the families that I see um, often would have a child with intellectual disability so the services, you know, are aren't are pretty good, um, albeit there's huge gaps in in the pediatric age group, um, but everybody has cues to see the speech and language therapist and the and the occupational therapists, and you know it's really critical for children to get input as soon as possible, but it still is better if you like than in adulthood, and one of the concerns that um, families have is is what happens to their child when they uh, finish the pediatric age group because they often don't have any. A specialist to go to. So, for example, in the Netherlands, they now have consultants in intellectual disability that would manage the patients. And as a geneticist, I deal with diagnosis. I don't deal with management. So I, we can't take this on ourselves. We already have a very long waiting list even t- to do what I do. Um, but within uh, one of the things that I suppose has, has come on board for rare diseases through the EU is this um, the European reference networks, which are 24 networks which deal with every part of the body and they're going to try or their aim is to try and improve the care of patients with rare diseases throughout Europe. And um, the one thing is if you start to count a rare disease and this this new technology that I was doing allowed us, allowed discovery of lots of new disease genes. So once you're able to diagnose uh, a particular disorder, then you can start counting and you can see that there's you know, so many cases in Ireland and then so many new cases get diagnosed per year. But also you can link in with your European um, colleagues. And um, and then once you have a kind of a group of patients with a particular disorder, you can start looking at, at um, all the problems that can arise and you can start develop guidelines and then you can do further research in terms of is there new therapies that might help. And it's only when you can count the patients with a particular condition that you can actually really improve their care. So it's, so the diagnosis is critical 
you know, as a kickstart to try and doing that. And of course, that means that uh, we don't know uh, potentially how rare a rare condition can be. There could be an awful lot of uh, underreporting going on. Absolutely, there is. There is, for sure. So often with a new disease gene, patients would say to you, oh, how old is the oldest case? But sure, people who are older don't get reinvestigated. So there's a kind of critical time window when a child presents with, for particular, I suppose, looking at the, the field that I often work with, with intellectual disability, so that the investigation happens whilst the, you know, the fact that they're um, developmentally delayed is noted. Um, and then they don't tend to get, that diagnosis doesn't tend to get revisited. So, for example, you know, a 40-year-old with intellectual disability, um, who's, who's reinvestigating those? Nobody. Um, so you don't have the data on the older age group. Uh, we will going forward and, um, you know, but it's it, it's something that parents often ask, you know, uh, what's the oldest age uh, um, with this? And you, you know, there's other people who are much older, but they just um, were born at a time when this technology wasn't available and the diagnosis wasn't reached. Mm-hmm. One final point, uh, another initiative that is uh, coming up and actually should be uh should be in full swing by the time our, our listeners get to this, is the Natural Genetics and Genomics Strategy, uh, which was launched there in December. Tell us a little bit about it and what it seeks to achieve. Well, it's, I mean, it's great. It's actually happening. Um, I think, um, sadly, the sort of the genetic technology, the diagnostic technology was invested in in a lot of um, sort of Western countries, but not here in Ireland. So we're sort of quite a bit behind our colleagues in, in, and we're dependent on commercial laboratories for testing um, and also because there's so few of, of my specialty um, there's not enough support of people or kind of organising very complex genetic testing so we do need to kind of get a grasp of it so the aim is to try and set up a, an office with um, specialists in, in my specialty but also particularly they need you know diagnostic laboratory specialists scientists who have experience in sort of managing testing and also it, it really does need to be centralised. So I think that they are, there is a name for that um, to try and centralise so that all this expensive testing kind of gets funneled through um, one, if you like, large laboratory. Uh, one concern we have is we can see that because this isn't in place, that there's a lot of duplication of expensive testing that, that's not needed. You know, it's it's unnecessary and it's kind of wasteful of money. So we're really keen for for the um, strategy to go ahead and for the central uh, centralised laboratory to be um, supported and, uh, you know, so that that people can who are trying to test their patients can get advice on the most appropriate test. And also because of, you know, GDPR, the fact that every hospital has a lot of um, um, vocational hospitals so that we can't, it's very difficult for clinicians in Ireland to get reports that are maybe done by a different doctor in a different hospital. So we really need to have I joined up IT systems, uh, one centralised laboratory uh, that will give advice to the clinicians, advising them on the best test to offer and also telling them, oh, by the way, this test has already been done by Dr. X in another hospital. You don't need to repeat it. And here's the report. And we, because we don't have those systems at the moment, it's a little bit, uh, it's, you know, a little bit concerning because uh, it can be very difficult for us to get reports. We spend our time chasing lots of different laboratories to, uh, to try and and find out what exactly has been done on the patient before we see them. So I do hope that this strategy, I think that it has good aims. The I suppose the one thing that we would really want is that well, we hope that they'll be able to recruit because they're looking for very specialised staff and we know from experience it's very difficult to recruit to these positions. 
And I, well, I guess what we're hoping is if, if they don't manage to recruit that there's a plan B and somehow some of the, the critical sort of systems errors in place are addressed, even if they don't get the, um, that you know, they don't appoint to this particular jobs they're looking at and somehow um, address gaps in the system. And that was Professor Sally Ann Lynch chatting with Niall Kitson. That's it for our show this week. We're back again next Friday on RTE Radio 1. Of course, you can grab us anytime you like by clicking follow on your podcast player right now to get new episodes automatically. Until next time, from myself and Niall Kitson, thanks as always for listening. Take care. Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie. Tech Radio is produced by DigitalAudioProductions.com. Tech Central.